0: you're about to hear my conversation with your investment strategist Brent Joyce. We talk all about the Mackenzie Blue Book, which is focused on our 2022 outlook. Uh, we survey the asset classes and go around the globe to get his perspective on the best places to invest next year. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schner, I'm delighted to be back with Brent Joyce. Brent, uh, I thought uh, we'd take this uh, time of the year to do something quite timely that lots of people look forward to which is a 2022 outlook uh, and I thought that maybe we could we could dive right into it Brent uh, I know that uh, the primary um, thing on investors minds for the past two years has obviously been the pandemic uh, barring some uh, some uh, new variants and that type of thing it does feel like we're getting uh, progressing at least in the the pandemic um, you know, what do you think about aftershocks uh, for the pandemic and what does this mean for the, and you see the pandemic abating in 2022?
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's great to be here again. We did just finish uh, the finishing touches on our 2022 outlook document. It's uh, been affectionately coined the blue book this year. Uh, It's a collaboration between myself and uh, members of the global investment committee. And then we, we had, um, Nine uh, investment boutiques uh, with 11 uh, investment managers contribute to the construction of the outlook as well. So it's quite quite a robust document and uh, happy to walk you through it. The title of it, as you keyed in on, is Pandemic Aftershocks, so Challenging, Not Insurmountable. And when we first started putting our heads toward this you know, seven, eight weeks ago, uh, the sky was looking a little brighter than today with uh, variants of concern and, and Omicron. Uh, so, it's not that we didn't contemplate uh, the disease for sure. It's in a nutshell, you know, it's impossible to predict the future course for the disease. Um, but the aftershocks is something that we do think we have a greater understanding of, of them because these are already being witnessed. It's the ripple effects from, you know, the major disruption to the global economy, it's the monetary and fiscal response that we've witnessed. And these are in our opinion, going to be as large as COVID itself as we move into 2022, the the ripple effects for capital markets, for sure. Uh, You know, hopefully if the disease abates, which, you know, we all hope for sure, then it's these aftershocks that will move to be the larger driver of capital markets in 2022. And our view on the disease in general is that, As, you know, for sure there's a risk and outbreaks remain, but we think that the world is much better equipped to handle outbreaks. We've got highly effective vaccines. We've got an expanding range of therapeutics. Right. Um, And each successive um, outbreak of the variant, should we have them, tends to now be looking at a, a smaller diminishing reaction, at least from capital markets. The fear of the unknown is greatly diminished. Uh, markets for sure are going to have to reprice the timing of a reopening perhaps, depending on how severe uh, a variance impact might be. But if the economy stumbles, we now know what fiscal and monetary authorities are prepared to do in response. Uh, If a return to normal stokes fears of tighter financial conditions and higher inflation, then we think a COVID setback removes some of that risk and should dampen inflation fears, even if it doesn't eliminate them. Um, COVID variants and the government restrictions, you know, they're going to weigh on economic activity, but that weight and the market's response, we think should start to diminish and be smaller and perhaps more selective as we move into 2022.
0: Perfect. Uh, And I did have a chance to to flip through the the blue book ahead of this conversation. Uh, Note that the outlook that you've put uh, together has five key threads. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll list sort of the five threads and then maybe we can get into a little bit more detail on all of them. Uh, So it's uh, really the aftermath of the pandemic uh, and inventory cycles and the havoc that that's causing Um, equities, outperforming uh, bonds, bond yields are expected to rise on inflation fears, global central bank policies, and finally, uh, Chinese economic growth, uh, which should help to buoy the global economy. So maybe we start with uh, at the beginning, a very good place to start. Uh, which is uh, what does the aftermath of the pa- pandemic look like?
1: I think we're experiencing a shakeup in most global economic systems you know that's unprecedented. It's causing distortions to the business cycle. And how capital markets respond to those ripples, those reverberating shocks is really how 2022 is going to be defined. We have this collision of excess demand that lots of people are talking about. We know about restrained supply and those two things butting up against each other really has driven these fears on inflation and then the attendant central bank response to the forefront. Uh, we think the timing and the unwind of the supply and these demand imbalances, you know, they're challenging to forecast because of the severity of it. This is really unprecedented. Uh, but we sure. do think that the pattern should prove to be one that's sort of, of a typical inventory cycle. And the inventory cycle has three stages, excess demand where we are now and we need to see a production ramp up uh, and we're in the inventory up cycle. That's very positive for for risk assets. Eventually, supply should catch up with demand and we untangle some of these supply chains. That's when the inventory cycle peaks. That's uh, mid next year potentially. And then eventually we'll get to an overshoot. Where the price signals that are being sent today cause businesses to uh, overorder, oversupply, and then supply exceeds the demand and the inventory cycle bottoms. And that's not the most favorable environment for stocks. It's uh, sometimes been a sideways move, certainly been a little bit more volatility. Volatility. So the first half of 2022 is that elevated upside of the of the inventory cycle, right. um, positive for stocks. We're still going to see the fiscal and monetary uh, policy coursing through the system. You know, we'll talk about the Fed, I'm sure. Uh, and people need to remember that uh, tapering is still adding accommodation, and right. rate liftoff, we think is you know middle to back half of next year, and it will be the first rate hike of several. Um, And then what we have to be concerned about is the equity market sort of sniffing out the expiration and the rundown of excess savings and the supply chains are untangled. Things we think of as problems, but they're good problems to have, as we've discussed in the past. And if that is this sort of slowing, mid-cycle slowdown it's often referred to, then in the back half of next year, we need to be concerned that equities might sniff that out and and we could be in for some volatility. I think the back half of next year for that is a conservative estimate. Okay. extent of the the disruption we've had on both demand and supply i think we have an opportunity for this inventory cycle to stretch out a little bit um the media seems to want to fast forward to the end game i mean the, the middle innings are are good for investors right and so maybe we should uh, enjoy them
0: great and and i guess against that backdrop, uh, drop yeah you mentioned that you expect or you wrote that you expect to have equities outperform bonds maybe expand on that a little bit
1: yeah, that is our overall view. We have a neutral stance, as we'll talk about, but we do expect equities to outperform bonds. The bond position is, you know, a risk mitigation tool. And as that inventory cycle uh, refills the shelves and the supply chain bottlenecks get untangled, um, you know, for, for the working through that as as that problem is is fixed, that means we've got strong demand. Um, and restocking the inventory cycle means that the factories are humming. And that's one of several factors that contribute to very solid expectations for global GDP growth. And it's very hard to be overly negative against that very strong backdrop of global GDP growth. It, economic growth is the fertile soil from which corporate earnings right, grow. And so corporate earnings are the lifeblood of share prices. And we see that backdrop as very supportive. Monetary policy just beginning to tighten. You know, fiscal spending, uh, it's expected to flow. And we hear about fiscal cliff, and that's true. We won't see as much uh, government spending in the economy as we did at the height of of combating COVID and all these transfers. Of course, of course not, right? And certainly, we hope that's not the case because it means the disease has taken a real turn for the worst. Right. But government spending, although slowing, is still at a very robust level and will continue to contribute um, to GDP growth. You know, unshackled from the pandemic, we see businesses and households stepping up. You know, all, all being well. Households have this accumulated savings. Um, they're seeing rising wages, positive wealth effects. Businesses, in turn, are also flush with cash. Um, tight labor markets and rising costs. Those can be a catalyst for capital investment spending. And hopefully that unlocks productivity gains, which, you know, mm. feeds all mouths. That's the magic elixir behind uh, capitalism is productivity gains. So we have to temper our expectations. You know, we're, I think equities do better than bonds, but the equity returns, as much as they will be buoyant, we think they'll be much shallower than what we have seen in uh, 2021. Um, The risks that we see that make us cautious and, and put us in our neutral stance, obviously a setback from the pandemic would be front and center. We might be wrong on inflation. Inflation could be more persistent and cause central banks to have to engage in tighter policy than they otherwise would want to. Um, There's the potential that capital markets simply scare themselves into thinking central banks might be headed for a policy error. Um, Equity valuations aren't cheap. Uh, Certain markets um, more or less than others. You know, we like Canada. Uh, Emerging markets after what they've gone through this year certainly are are not expensive. Um, And then we have this increased volatility to think about as we move into this stage of the business cycle. So that's an environment that can present some short-term tactical opportunities, which we'll have lots of opportunity to chat about as we do more of these podcasts in the next
0: year. Great. Uh, look forward to, to those, uh, to those uh, chats and, and tactical positioning uh, in the future. Uh, I, just reflecting on, on your answer there, you laid out a fair number of positives. Uh, the strong GDP growth, strong consumer spending, uh, still uh, very strong business investment. Uh, And less uh, fiscal, but still fairly generous fiscal spending as well. Um, Two other themes that you touched on, but maybe we can expand on them a little bit, uh, which is uh, inflation and then the central bank reaction function to that inflation uh, that have to be a little bit less positive that you sort of indicated to to the overall outlook.
1: Yeah, those are our two concerns uh, and and COVID setback that we've discussed as the major risks. You know, on inflation, I think it's helpful to maybe level set on a few definitions. Perfect. We have you know the demand pull for inflation, we have the cost push side of inflation and we have base effects to consider. So demand pull inflation is just a surge in demand. Um, this type of inflation markets can deal with. It is a sign of the good times. Uh, you know it includes wage growth, it fuels further consumption. The key for us as investors is our businesses participating in that inflation pass through to the extent that they can keep you know all important corporate earnings protected. Um, cost push—that's the you know more negative uh, side of it. These are the supply constraints, uh, supply chains, right. tight labor markets, um, and we think that you know businesses are on this planet to fix those problems. And if getting labor or stepping up and having to pay more for labor, uh, we have to be mindful of that as it relates to earnings. But we do see that that can be offset somewhat with you know technological adoption, uh, you know, and automation that's coming through. But the last one that you know, Chair Powell has pointed to, um, uh, the Bank of Canada has pointed to, uh, are this persistent versus a, a step up in prices, and we see inflation resetting to a higher level than the ten years that we've been through prior to the pandemic, where it was exceptionally low. So right. yes, inflation will be higher, but we don't see it as a as a, a revolution in inflation. It's just a reset. And so something that starts with a two at the end of uh, next year is certainly uh, the central, the, the Canadian central bank's expectation. And even uh, the Fed sees inflation coming down the other side of the mountain. And the U.S. is the, the economy that's experiencing the most inflation at the moment. So we think that the media and the uh, the zeitgeist in the in the uh, marketplace today is really uh, quite inflamed about inflation, and that those fears, at least, inflation may not have peaked yet, but the fear of it certainly we think is near uh, or at the peak. You know, the number of stories we see in the media around inflation has skyrocketed. Politicians sure. are railing over inflation and s- striking special committees. These are all markers of of a, a topic that has uh, largely well been priced in by markets. And, and yesterday's market response to the Fed's um, tightening. Uh, is, is pretty indicative of that. If you think about five or six months from now, yes. we should be in an environment where inflation is, is coming down off of those base effects. The demand pull won't be as strong. We will have spent some of that savings that's accumulated, uh, and we will have hopefully untangled the supply chain. So all of what is you know punching the headlines today is poised to be less poignant five to six months from now. And that should correspond quite conveniently to the timing next year when central banks have indicated they will be thinking about or in fact starting to raise rates. And so the pressure on them from markets, politicians, uh, media, the public to do something about inflation won't be nearly as great uh, when inflation is going higher and higher and higher as it is today. We should be at least looking at a couple of three months where inflation has started to cool off. And as fast as it's ramped up, we think that it can roll down uh, at a pretty brisk pace next year as well.
0: Interesting. I mean, I, I think that what goes with inflation is obviously the central bank reaction function to it uh, with uh, lots of commentators worried about a policy error. Uh, what do you foresee from various central banks uh, around the world?
1: Yeah, this is the one risk that, you know, us, um, Dustin Reed, who's been on this podcast, he and I've chatted about it at length this week and, and the Global Investment Committee has chatted about it as being one of the, the major ones. And it is this notion that we're wrong on inflation, and the Fed is wrong on inflation, and it is more persistent than we than we think. Uh, we're not putting a zero probability on that. We just don't think that that's our base case. And then yeah, then you have this typical response to inflation that the central bank would be almost forced to invoke, um, and that's certainly something equity and risk assets are going to bark at if they see, right. uh, you know, the notion that you have to have a fifty basis point hike at some point next year, and we're looking at uh, a steeper path for for tightening. Uh, I think there's some special considerations that we need to be mindful of, not the least of which is this expanded purview that central banks are being asked to commit to these days. It's not just the unemployment rate. It's the quality of, of unemployment. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the participation rate. So there are uh, labor market metrics that are not as strong as just the, uh, the job creation and the unemployment rate. We still have a fragile economy in this post-pandemic world. If we get there into a post-pandemic world, we've got behaviors that have have been shifted and adjusted that we need to understand. And then obviously the debt. So raising borrowing costs and, and increasing interest rates is going to have obviously an immediate impact on debt servicing. And the amount of debt that has been strapped on by businesses and consumers and governments um, is vastly different than it was three years ago. And then we had the financial crisis, so it's different than it was 15 years ago. And the sensitivity to the economy to rate increases, I think, is an open question. And central banks will be cautious, I think, to administer some some medicine and then see how the patient reacts. Um, they been very, very good at making markets accustomed to this data dependency. And so I don't think we should lose sight of that.
0: Great. Um, And maybe just extend that a little bit. Uh, You referenced the recent announcement from the Fed, uh, who's going to uh, uh, double the pace of tapering, more rate hikes coming soon. How does that play into your forecast when when you're uh, making it for next year?
1: Yeah, it it is what we expect, right? You cannot ignore the level of inflation in the US and the extent to which the labor market is healing quite rapidly. So the Fed, every central bank, uh, but the Fed is in the hot seat as the central bank to the world, quite frankly, um, has to really stick the landing here and, and to thread the needle. And they did that beautifully yesterday. Jerome Powell is is um, shaping up to be a pretty good communicator uh, with this forward guidance. I think markets have also become more accustomed to understanding what forward guidance uh, means, and so they need to hit this sort of Goldilocks zone. And I, I hate to use that word, but it, it is this not too hot, uh, not too cold. They don't want us. Markets don't want to see the Fed asleep at the wheel, and so they demonstrated that yesterday. They said to to folks, listen, we are going to deliver on expectations. We are not a blind and oblivious to what's happening on the ground. We said we're data dependent and that includes having to bring tightening when necessary. And it is high time that we get there with some tightening. So they laid the foundation very well. The fact that the early going here on markets is cheering that reaction both the bond and the equity market are are little changed to positive on that news mm-hmm. is you know corroboration validation for the fed that uh, the market thinks they are able to get it right and that's where you know this uh, reasonable outcome this balanced outcome into next year where policy starts to get normalized against a very strong backdrop That isn't something that investors should be frightened with. Uh, The stock market clearly isn't frightened by it, Uh, but there's still room along the way for a misstep. Uh, And data dependent means we got to watch the data. And we'll know more on Omicron in three weeks, and we'll know twice as much in six weeks, and we'll certainly know more about inflation as the next couple, three months unfold.
0: Great. Uh, Just uh, circling back to those five key themes, uh, the, the, the other one that we haven't talked about is China. Uh, You identify China as playing a key role in 2022. How do you see it playing though?
1: Yeah, this is where in the back half of next year, if we have exhausted the savings to some extent and the supply chains are fixed and the inventory cycle starts to head down the other side and equity markets get a bit uh, uh, antsy about that, They'll be seeking for a new catalyst, a new narrative and a stimulus that's injected into China and a stronger than expected today, at least Chinese economy, uh, is one that we felt was possible in 2022 and developments just early in December here have really helped us to to, uh, solidify that view. Um, you know the economic cycle in, in China is asynchronous with the rest of the world and that's a positive for us as asset allocators sure um, our, our view that China will, will enter into an up cycle the reason it's strengthened is we had this reserve required reserve ratio cut last week by the, the People's Bank of China triple uh, R cut if you will. that in the past has been a signal of a new easing cycle but on top of that, you know the easing cycle that it, that it could come next year was further echoed by a change in the language from the annual Politburo meeting and what they call the Central Economic Work Conference that happens every December. And the message being sent um, just early in December was a clear policy pivot from regular, regulatory tightening, which is what we've seen this year, to one supporting growth. Hmm. And the key word that they've identified in the document is stability the document mentions it 25 times versus 13 times in last year's statement. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the pursuit of stability, these regulatory reforms, you know, climate goals and the deleveraging we've seen in the real estate sector, um, they look like they're going to have to be flexible alongside growth. Um, furthermore, you know, the language uh, praised uh, private enterprise and capital versus last year, the messaging was very anti-monopoly, anti um, curbing the disorderly expansion of capital. So all of this sets the stage for 2021 to be, uh, sorry, for 2022 to be a, um, a step back from the regulatory tightening and from the monetary uh, financial conditions tightening that has been part of this year's story. Uh, they've also recognized that maybe they've gone too far. And so we do think China's credit cycle is poised for an upturn. It, it's at a bottoming now after 12 months of tightening. So it's set to go. You put that on top of next year being a uh, leadership review at the end of the year and a plenum year every five years. Those are often catalysts for stimulus. So the the markers and the signals are all pointing in the same direction. I don't think that this is going to be the end of regulation um, in in China, but we're maybe over the peak in terms of tightening. And then for sure, they're looking to have uh, a more balanced approach between growth and, and what was taking place this year. Perfect.
0: Uh, Why don't we turn now to more specific recommendations in the uh, in the outlook uh, and just to circle back to sort of the broader fixed income equity uh, uh, breakdown. I see that it's neutral fixed income versus equity. Why is that? I mean, we've gone through a a fair amount on your views on equities being a little bit more positive and, and worry about fixed incomes. Why neutral?
1: Yeah, we are constructive on the outlook for equities, but we do think that there are enough risks and the tail impact, if you will, of some of those risks, if they go sideways, uh, are, are high enough that it warrants a neutral stance. You put onto that that equity valuations are not cheap, right? They're elevated. Um, equities are going to have to deal with some downward pressure on margins, potentially, from rising costs, some downward pressure on multiples from rising bond yields. Um, and, and so that's some of the stuff that makes us uh, uh, neutral. So earnings growth normalizes back to single digit levels that's um, you know equity markets I think that remain buoyant but obviously a shallower trajectory. And we do expect bond yields to rise you know mildly in 2022. Uh, the move higher this year certainly has gone part of the way to do that but I think some further upward adjustment remains. Um, so we'll keep duration short for now uh, but we see, Yields eventually being restrained by this, you know, massive amount of uh, global debt that is out there, and the fact that we think central banks are going to take um, a fairly light touch. They're going to they're going to tap on the brakes, but not slam on the brakes. And that's a lot of what came out of yesterday, right? Do do more sooner, so you don't have to do, or do less sooner, so that you don't have to do more later in terms of of tightening. So an environment where equity gains flatten out. Uh, we see an uptick in volatility. There's going to be the recession scares and the stagflation scares. Those are going to swirl from time to time. We think those will remain just fears that they won't actually materialize, but there'll okay. be volatility from that. Uh, and then we think you know, having a, a ballast in the portfolio with some high-quality fixed income is prudent to weather those bouts of risk-off sentiment.
0: Perfect. Why don't we dive a little bit more into that fixed income bucket and go through the various asset classes uh, within that. Uh, let's start with sovereign bonds. What's, what's the view for uh, sovereign bonds? next year?
1: Yeah, we're most underweight in the sovereign bond category. We do think yields move higher. Central banks take per asset purchases and, and raise overnight rates. Uh, nominal yields will face upward pressure from rising inflation, risk premia. Uh, rising real yields should be part of the story as growth remains strong. Um, but you still have flows from these ultra- Low yield jurisdictions to keep a bit of a, a lid on how high rates can go, Europe and Japan, right in a, in a global marketplace, and these are the highest quality credit that's the, that's out there. They are right. a very good hedge against these short term bouts of risk off sentiment, uh, and so we think some exposures warranted, albeit it's underweight.
0: Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Why don't why don't we turn to investment grade uh, corporate bonds, which uh, I know that a lot of people view. Uh, as an alternative to sovereigns, uh, just given the, the higher um, uh, degree of uh, credit rating, what's your view on investment grade corporates?
1: Yeah, so we step up from an underweight to a neutral view on investment-grade credit because you do have some, some yield pickup. Um, we shouldn't be too concerned about defaults uh, or credit rating downgrades against uh, large cash balances on, on uh, the balance sheets of corporations and a constructive backdrop for, for earnings growth. You still have pretty good demand from yield-hungry investors uh, the world over, right. but we have to acknowledge that credit spreads are tight. Uh, and they do provide less of a buffer because they're tight from rising government bond yields. Um, but investment-grade credit provides yield pickup that's attractive. Uh, and that's where we we sit with this neutral stance
0: there. And finally, uh, overweight, high-yield bonds, uh, is it just an extension of your view going from sovereign to investment-grade that eventually gets you to, to the overweight?
1: That's exactly right. You know, we have um, high yield leverage loans to outperform investment grade in our forecast. You get additional spread buffer there, uh, you know, that puts the high and high yield, obviously, right? Um, we expect some flow through of higher rates to impact high yield bonds. Um, so, we are looking at shorter duration leveraged loans oh, in okay. that category, which benefit from rising rates, you know, on a floating rate basis, uh, resets, uh, and they have virtually zero duration. So, that would be uh, one nugget of, uh, of optimism in the, in the high yield space.
0: Perfect. Uh, I think we've dispensed with uh, with fixed income. Why don't we move to the equity uh, part of the portfolio? Uh, from a regional basis, uh, I see that you're uh, overweight Canadian equity. Um, you know, wh- what's behind that rationale? What are the risks uh, to that and the opportunities?
1: Yeah, Canadian equities, they're levered very much uh, to global growth. We anticipate strong capital returns to shareholders. We saw that recently with the banks once they were allowed to uh to move with dividends and share buybacks, they stepped up aggressively. Um, sure. I think there's more of that in the energy space as well. Mm. Um, it's a value cyclically oriented market. It's favorable against the backdrop of rising yields and, and rising commodity prices, or at least firm commodity prices. Uh, and the valuations there are most attractive and, and you get a 2.8% dividend yield. So what's not like?
0: like? Uh, makes a lot of sense. I, I guess turning to a, a market that has entirely different dynamics, which is the US. Uh, you're underweight underweight US equities uh clearly us has uh, been uh, a bad market to underweight uh, over the past several years uh curious about your decision to uh to underweight it, uh with a uh, outlook into 2022
1: yeah, underweight doesn't mean zero, right? It's uh, sure. all relative. Um, and the US equity market is home to many of the world's most exciting growth companies, right? Uh, and, and these are fabulous franchises, but they've been very popular and they have the valuations that go with the popularity contest uh, that sometimes exists in the, in the short term. We do think you know, the S&P 500 has, at the aggregate level delivers reasonable uh, earnings growth, but it's this elevated valuations that we think have to have some downward adjustment. Uh, rising costs might be the most poignant in, in the US. When you look at wage growth in the US versus Canada and Europe, it is moving at a faster clip. Um, so we expect overall US equities to be positive but moderating. And then it's you know half the dividend yield at 1.4% of, of a
0: market like Canada, for example. Right. Uh, perfect. Uh, and let's uh, let's continue our, our trip around the globe. I'll talk about international developed markets and EM as well. Uh, you're neutral on both of them. Uh, do they share similar themes on why you're neutral or uh, did you end up there for different reasons or what, what are your thoughts on uh, both EM and efi uh,
1: no, similar um, thought process uh, to get to the neutral for both of them because they're similar in many respects. Both markets are more sensitive to Chinese economic growth, including you know developed Europe uh, mm. is pretty sensitive to to the Chinese economy, uh, a lot of an export uh, footprint there, right? And you know in the international developed market space, Europe, Japan, we still have similar to Canada. You've got more of a value cyclical. Uh, there's a good industrial uh, segment there. Uh, global trade-oriented exposure should perform well against the backdrop of, of a solid uh, global economic uh, uh, economy. Um, you know, financial conditions in Europe and Japan remain easier than North America. You know, the ECB may raise rates a little, uh, probably nothing from Japan. Uh, valuations are moderate there, and, uh, and the index uh, you know, pumps out a 3% dividend yield if you look at the uh, EFI the index. That's an area where I, I could see us perhaps becoming a little more constructive uh, in the back half of next year. Okay. And then similar comments for emerging markets. You know, They're lever to a global expansion scenario. Uh, we're on watch for some of the headwinds that were this year uh, turning into tailwinds, Chinese growth stabilizing or perhaps improving in the latter half of next year with this potential for stimulus, um, tempering of that regulatory reform. And you know the weak performance this year does leave them uh, cheaper than, than other markets, and that's tough to find uh, in a year when we've sure. had such strong results across the board. EM stands out as, uh, as a bit contrarian.
0: Well, Brent, uh, I think we've uh, thoroughly gone through the different components around the globe, looking at the macro. Uh, as you referenced at the top of this, uh, you were uh, brave enough uh, to put all of these in the uh, blue book uh, that is available on our website. Uh, a, a excellent document to reference. I really appreciate you taking our t- uh, this time to walk through that. Uh, thanks very much for all the support over the year and uh, happy holidays and happy new year to you.
1: Yes. Thank you. Same to you. Same to our, our audience. All the best for the holidays and happy investing in 2022. And we'll look forward to talking to you in January.
0: Thanks, Brent. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes, and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions, and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.